Welcome to the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Teaching Podcast. We are so glad that you've been able to join us. We are currently teaching through the book of Matthew in a series we are calling Something Greater because the message that Matthew proclaims over and over in his book is that something greater than anything else is here, and that something greater is Jesus. It's our prayer that as we study this book together, we will see a picture of Jesus that is more beautiful than anything this world can offer. If you're in the Nashville area, we'd love for you to join us in person. We worship together on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 at 3410 Granny White Pike, Nashville, Tennessee. Good morning. Uh, that was awesome. Welcome to church. So glad that you are here. Uh, my name is Gary Anderson. I serve as the pastor here at Midtown Fellowship Granny White. It is a joy uh, to be in God's house together with you this morning. This is what I want to do. Um, I know that Joanna just prayed and it was beautiful, um, but I want to pray again. So we're leaning into prayer. No, I mean, that's not really why, but kind of. Uh, I love communion Sundays here at Midtown. I have never experienced communion the way that we do communion at Midtown. That has nothing to do with me. That's a stream I entered into. Uh, But I struggle a little bit on communion Sundays because I need more than one song for my heart to begin to warm up to enter into the presence of God. And so every communion Sunday, this just feels like kind of a harsh transition for me from one song. Uh, Now, God can work in one song. He can work in less than one song. But I just want to pray before we open up God's word together uh, that he will soften our hearts as we sit here right now, that he will supernaturally allow us to focus on what matters. Uh, So will you just join me in prayer? God, we thank you and, uh, and we love you and we ask that you would help us to love you more. God, we thank you that we can be together in this place and that uh, though we know that your spirit, for those who are in Christ, your spirit is with us always. We also believe that your spirit is with us in a special way when, when we're gathered together in your name. And so what I ask right now, God, is that we would feel that. I pray uh, that you would move amongst us, that you would do what the living God does, that is touch hearts. I pray that you would um, allow us in these moments, God to set down uh, the, the distractions and the frustrations and the baggage that we bring in here uh, and allow us to simply sit at your feet and be taught by you. And more than be taught, God, I pray that we would be changed by you in this moment. I pray that what you have for us today um, would sink deep into our hearts and souls and we would not leave this place unchanged. Uh, we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Uh, all right, if we were all to uh, take a field trip together, to uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. We're not going to do that. But if someone in here felt led to do that for us, we would love to. Uh, that, would be, that would be fantastic. If we were to go to Copenhagen together, uh, one of the things we would have to go see while we were in Copenhagen, uh, one, because it's so big that it would be hard to miss it, but two, because it's such a, a tourist attraction and such a kind of a big deal, is a building uh, in the middle of Copenhagen called Copenhill. Copenhill is actually a man-made ski hill in the middle of what is one of the flattest countries and one of the flattest cities. I can tell by your eyes the picture is up there. (laughs) This is Copenhill. I was going to describe it for you and then show it to you, but it's better to see it, isn't it? It's 28 stories tall, so it's 280 feet tall. The ski run is uh, 1,300 feet. It's called a dry ski run, so you can do it all year round. It looks like turf and Uh, As you all know about my skiing expertise, I don't have much to say about how good that is for skiing, but you can ski on it year-round. If you see over on the right-hand side, uh, that is a climbing wall. It's the tallest climbing wall in the world, 260 feet plus. There's also actually a hiking path uh, that goes up Copenhill. It was built in 2017. In 2021, 
It won the award for World Building of the Year at the World Architecture Festival. I think I've heard it's like Bonnaroo, but <laughs> I've never been, so I'm not, entire, not exactly sure what that means, but it's a big deal. Now, if you're looking at this picture with me right now and you're like, it also there seems like something else is going on there, you're very perceptive because on the back side of Copenhill, there is a massive smokestack. That is because Copenhill is also a garbage processing facility. Over 400,000 tons of garbage annually is processed into clean energy underneath this beautiful ski hill in the middle of downtown Copenhagen. Uh, this is a picture, literally, so, so every day, truck after truck after truck brings all the filth and garbage and refuse and brokenness of the city of Copenhagen, and here it is turned into beautiful, clean energy with this beautiful ski hill and hiking path and climbing wall on top of it. Pretty cool, huh? I wanted to show you that picture and describe to you this place because I think it is also a picture of every one of our lives. Now, if you're like, did the pastor just compare my life to a garbage processing facility? The answer is yes, and we're glad you're in church this morning. Uh, because uh, particularly in the community that we are in, particularly in a place like Green Hills, 12 South, in Nashville, where some of, if not the highest values here are looking good, performing, meeting or exceeding expectations, succeeding, this is a picture of what so many of us, maybe not all of us, but the vast majority of us, are trying to do with our lives. Because when we survey the landscape of our lives, and I don't care if you come from complete, traumatic, horrible background, or if you just came from kind of a normal, like not, nothing like huge deal background, we are all wading through a ton of brokenness. We are all wading through a bunch of, I'm not sure this is a word a pastor is supposed to use. I don't allow my kids to use it at home, but I'm gonna use it right now. We all got a bunch of crap in our lives. And, and, and truck after truck keeps coming into our soul, dumping off garbage, and we are doing everything in our power to put a beautiful Leeds certified, whatever, whatever, manicured ski hill and climbing wall and just present this image publicly that we are clean and we got our stuff together and we look good while all the while there is this dumpster fire raging inside of us trying to process all of the brokenness that we are dealing with. I've said this before and I'll say it again. If we had time for an open mic session today, which we don't, so sorry, but if we did and we invited people to come share their stories or even just share what you're going through right now, there wouldn't be a dry eye in the room by the time it's over. We are all working through garbage and when we look at the, when we survey the landscape of our life, of our family, of our community, of our world, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, it is hard not to look at all of that and sometimes think, is it possible for anything good to come out of this? Is it possible for anything beautiful to come out of this brokenness? We, are, uh, we, did a, we had a soft launch last week of our new spring series. Well, I guess it's not spring yet. It is spring. Were you outside yesterday? <laughs> spring is here, right? Uh, come on. Spring is here. I think we can all agree that. And so that's wonderful news for us here in Nashville. Uh, we're going to do a hard launch of this series today. So we are going to spend the next few months studying through the gospel of Matthew together. And as we talked about last week, we are titling this series 
uh, something greater. Because in Matthew 12, Jesus tells the Pharisees three different times, something greater is here. And as we talked about last week, that is just the note. That is, that is the theme. That is the note that Matthew just plays over and over and over again through 28 chapters. He's just reiterating something greater is here and that something greater is Jesus. And what I want to talk about today as we enter into the, uh, the first passage of the book of Matthew is uh, the idea that God can bring something beautiful from something broken. God can bring something beautiful from something broken. And so uh, our text today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and uh, Kaylee Cornett, come on down, Kaylee. She's going to read it for us. Welcome, Kaylee. Welcome her like you mean it. Thank you. And, and after she has read the text, you, you're going to be like, then you're going to really cheer, Okay. Uh, What was the ending verse? 17. Okay. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born and who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. She just left and she's never coming back. There's about half a dozen people in here this morning who are like, I don't know how they select people, but if that's random and I get selected to do that, I'm, I'm not in it. So um, only in church, right? Someone's going to ask Kaylee this, on Monday what she did this weekend, and she's going to be like, I read 42 Hebrew names in front of 300 people, uh, and we're here for it. Uh, you can be forgiven uh, if you did not find your heart all aflutter with emotion during the reading of God's word this morning. The way that Matthew starts his biography of the life of Jesus is with a list of names. And um, while it would be really easy to look at this, uh, these 17 verses and be like, 
that's something you just got to kind of gut it out if you're reading through the gospel until you get to the good stuff. What I hope we're going to see in the next few moments that we have together is there's actually some amazing truth that Matthew is communicating to us uh, in this genealogy of Jesus' uh, ancestors that he gives us to open up the book of Matthew. So, again, we're preaching from the idea, uh, I guess, well, yeah, this is a collective effort. Uh, We're preaching from the effort that God can bring something beautiful from something broken this morning. And there are just two things I want us to draw out of this text uh, as we sit in it this morning. And the first is this. God does what he promises. God does what he promises. Now, in order to really appreciate what is happening here as we enter into the gospel of Matthew, we have to have some biblical context, some uh, story of scripture context, some narrative arc of scripture context, context, particularly because what we are coming to today is, is the first book the first chapter, the first verse of the New Testament, which starts kind of a whole new deal in our Bible after we finish the Old Testament. And I just want to say this as a side note. This is not, this is just free. This is not really part of the sermon. Um, I grew up in church and I grew up uh, primarily understanding the Bible to be kind of just a bunch of random uh, memory verses with some stories that were somewhat connected to those. And I cannot tell you what learning the big picture story of Scripture did to unlock God's Word for me. So as much as I can in our time together, I want to help us get the big picture of what is going on here. So we have to understand big picture-wise what's happening in the Old Testament for us to appreciate what is happening as we come to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. So the Old Testament, what is it about? I'll tell you. It is about Yahweh, the one true God, the God of creation. It is about Yahweh calling a specific group of people here in his creation into a special relationship with him that he might do something in his creation through those people. And that gets kicked off, I mean, it gets kicked off in Genesis 1, but it really gets kicked off in Genesis 12 when God comes to a man named Abram. Now, Abram did not know Yahweh, did not know who he was. We learn later in scripture that Abram was an idol worshiper. He wasn't like in some kind of great relationship with God to begin with. God comes to Abram and he says, I want to have a special relationship with you. And he makes him some promises. And he says, "Uh, you're going to be great and your name is going to be great. And your descendants are going to be more numerous than the sand on the sea or the stars in the sky. He says, a great family, a great nation is going to come from you. And then he says, Abram, I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendants. And then Abram dies. And he doesn't really see those promises fulfilled. But God begins to fulfill those promises and Abram's offspring continue to multiply and they become what we know as the nation of Israel. And they become large and they become, uh, at at one point they become powerful. And as they're reaching kind of the the peak of their power, 1,200 years after Abram, who now we call Abraham, uh, God calls a shepherd boy from the field and says, I want you to be king over Abraham's family. And that shepherd boy's name is David. And David is the greatest king in the nation of Israel's history. And once his rule is established, once it's clear that God's hand is on him and his enemies have been defeated, God makes some promises to David. And I just want to read it for you so that we can understand where we're coming from. In 2 Samuel 7, this is verses 12 to 14, this is what God says to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And so what begins to become clear is that God is one day going to uh, raise up a descendant of David 
who is going to be like David, but it's going to be even better than David, even greater than David. When it says his throne will be forever, that indicates it's something different. He's not a normal human king. And so what Abraham's family, his offspring, the nation of Israel began to anticipate and look forward to was that this son of David was eventually going to come in. And uh, maybe I should have mentioned this earlier. For, for those of you who kind of know even just the basic arc of the Old Testament, uh, Abraham's family did just a wonderful job of walking with God. Thank you. That's a church joke. That's a church joke. They, were t- they did a terrible job of walking with God. It was a train wreck, and everything fell apart. And so this son of David that God had promised came to be seen as the one who was going to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. He came to be uh, expected to be the one who was going to save the nation, who was going to redeem them, who was going to again conquer their enemies. And what we find out as we continue to move through the Old Testament is God continues to promise that this one is going to come, but he never actually shows up. And then we get to the last prophet of the Old Testament, who's Malachi. God speaks through Malachi, and then he goes silent for 400 years. We call it the intertestamental period. No new word from the Lord, no new prophecy, no new promises, and they're waiting and waiting and waiting for this one that had been promised. But during those 400 years, the garbage trucks just keep coming and dumping more garbage and dumping more garbage. And I don't know if you've ever waited for something for 400 years, actually much longer. David was 1,000 years before Christ. But the longer it takes for that promise to be fulfilled, the less confidence you have that it's actually going to be fulfilled. And then sometime around the turn from BC to AD, we're not exactly sure what year it was, In a little obscure town outside uh, of Jerusalem, a baby is born. And when that baby grows up to be a man, he starts walking around the nation of Israel telling people, I'm the one that you have been waiting for. And a lot of them didn't believe him. And after his time on this earth is done, one of his very best friends during his time on this earth writes a story about his life. He writes a biography of that man's life. And when Matthew sits down to write his biography of the life of Jesus Christ, the very first thing that he says is this, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that verse is so pregnant with theology. We could just spend the rest of our time camping out in that one verse. We're not going to do it. But in no uncertain terms, when Matthew comes to write his story of the life of Jesus Christ, right up top, the very first thing that he says is God has done what he promised. God has fulfilled what he promised. The two great promises of the Old Testament were made to Abraham and to David. And Matthew walked and talked and lived and did ministry with Jesus for three years. And after his time here was done, based on everything Matthew had witnessed and seen and experienced, he said, I can tell you for sure, Jesus is the one you were waiting for. Something greater is here. God has fulfilled his promise. The one he promised to Abraham 2,200 years ago. The one he promised to Moses 1,400 years ago. The one he promised to David 1,000 years ago. The one he promised to Isaiah 700 years ago. He is here. His name is Jesus. God does what he promises. Uh, when I was growing up, there was a very large and very influential uh, Christian organization called Promise Keepers. They, uh, many of you I'm sure have some experience with them at least. They would hold rallies in stadiums, uh, all over this country and literally all over the world. Um, I went to one. I can remember going to one with my dad. It was aimed at men, and it was meant to inspire men to be leaders and live godly lives. Uh, probably the height of Promise Keeper's uh, influence and reach 
I think it was in 1997, they did a march on Washington, D.C., and it was estimated that six to 800,000 men filled the National Mall for that Promise Keepers event. Uh, after that, uh, they ran into financial trouble, and not, I don't think there was anything wrong. It just the finances went sideways. That organization is, uh, is still around. It's a lot smaller today, and I need to, um, I need to be very careful about the words that are going to come out of my mouth next. I need to, probably should have written this down instead of done it on the fly. So, so it is. Uh, I, I love what Promise Keepers stood for. They have influenced a, a generation of men, and I believe God worked, I'm, I'm sure he worked powerfully uh, through that organization, and there are probably people in this room who could speak to what it did for them and their lives. Uh, on Promise Keepers' website, they have the seven promises that a promise keeper uh, strives to keep. And I just struggle with that a little bit because what is really clear from the teaching of the gospel in scripture is that we are not the promise keepers. God is the promise keeper. He is the one who does what he says he will do. And in fact, it's not that we are not the promise keepers, it's that we can't keep the promises there, there is nothing more basic to our understanding of what this book teaches us about who we are except that it teaches us you can't do what you think you want to do. He is the promise keeper and we are not. And what he says he will do, and you can take that to the bank. And somebody needs to hear that this morning. God does what he says he is going to do. And we don't have time for this right now, but I'm going to do it anyway because I think it's so important. I want to remind you of just some of the things that God has promised us in his word that he is going to do for us. Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Deuteronomy 31, 8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Isaiah 40, 31. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 43.2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Matthew 11.28 and 29, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for, from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about everything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, Philippians 4, 19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Jesus Christ. Listen, it may not be in our timing, and it may not be in the way we want it or the way that we expect it. God keeps his promises. God does what he says he will do. I was going to say if that's the only thing you get out of it, but I don't want that to be the only thing you get out of it. I want you to get that out of it, and I want you to get one more thing out of it, and it's the second thing that I want us to see in this passage. God can bring something beautiful from something broken. God can bring something beautiful from something broken. So we have, uh, we've now looked at one verse. We have 16 to go. <laughs> That's a pastor. So we got church jokes. We got pastor jokes. Uh, look out for the dad joke coming in hot in a minute. 
Uh, I just want to try and give us, because for most of us, when we hear those 42 names that Kaylee just read amazingly, uh, most of them are like, that just, I don't even, that, that means that registers nothing for me. So I just want to take a few moments and try and give us a little bit of the flavor of the family tree, the picture of the family tree that Matthew paints for us here in his first chapter. So we've talked about Abraham already, uh, like amazing, you know, father of the people of Israel. He also was a uh, compulsive liar. Uh, his grandson, Jacob, uh, I don't think it's an overstatement to say he was just a dirtbag. <laughs> like you read his story and it's like, this guy is evil. And then his sons, Judah and his brothers, which are right here in verse two, the middle part of the book of Genesis is basically the story of what a train wreck those men's lives were. They were, a, they, anyway, yeah, they were bad. And then we get to actually kind of something sweet as we work through this genealogy. Matthew names four women in his genealogy, which is highly irregular, highly unexpected for a genealogy from the ancient Near East. Uh, he gives us Tamar, uh, Rahab, Ruth, and then he doesn't name her by name, but Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah in verse 6. Uh, and we're going to... We're keeping it PG this morning, so we're not going to talk too much about their stories. But suffice it to say, uh, several of them did not have very stellar reputations. Uh, and here's the other thing. All four of them were Gentiles. They were not ethnic Jews. And so there's just, in the midst of this kind of crazy family tree, I think God is making a really beautiful point that we want to completely affirm here at Midtown Fellowship Granny White. Women are very important to God. And he includes them in the genealogy of his Son, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let's keep going. So we get to verse 6, and we get to uh, David. And what does he say about David? David was the father of Solomon. By who? By the wife of Uriah. And it's like, it's like when we get here, Matthew is like, I'm not going to sweep anything under the rug. Like, we're just going to keep it really real as we talk about the lineage that Jesus Christ came from. Because David, greatest king in Israel's history, man after God's own heart, also took a, another man's wife for himself and then had that man murdered so that he could keep her for himself. That's like not a great look, okay? And, and Matthew's like, we're not gonna let that be forgotten. David's grandson Rehoboam was a fool. The nation of Israel went to civil war under his leadership and then was split into became two nations because he was such a train wreck as a leader. Then we get down into, in verse 8, we get down to Joram. In 2 Chronicles, he's called Jehoram. And when he ascended to the throne of Israel, we're told that he murdered every single one of his brothers because they all, uh, so that he would have no, no one else that would have a claim on the throne. That the, the dudes that he played football with in the backyard growing up, when he got to be king, he took off all their heads so that none of them would be a threat to his power. And then we keep going down the line and we get to Manasseh, or excuse me, we get to Ahaz. Uh, Second Chronicles tells us that Ahaz uh, sacrificed his children by burning them alive to a pagan god. And then we get down to Manasseh a few names later. Now listen, there are a few good ones in here, okay? I don't want to like, make it seem like the, every single one of them, but I'm just trying to give you like the flavor, okay? Uh, the flavor. We get down to Manasseh, and I just want to read what, uh, what the Second Chronicles says about Manasseh. This is Second Chronicles 33.9. It says, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. 
it seems like when you're reading through 2 Chronicles, maybe a little bit of a throwaway verse, but it is actually a critical turning point in the story and the nation of Israel because when God brought the Israelites into the promised land, he drove out nations before them. And part of why God told the Israelites he was doing that is because the nations that had been in the promised land before Israel were so sinful Their sin was so egregious that God said, I have to judge them for their sin and I'm going to use you to judge them. And then by the time we get to Manasseh, sitting on the throne of Israel, we are told that Manasseh led Israel to do more evil than all of those nations that God said, I got to judge their evil and I'm going to use you to judge them. Listen, this is the family tree from hell. And then we get down to verse 16 and we're told Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. This genealogy is a list of murdering, lying, cheating, backstabbing, freaks, geeks, and losers. And the God of creation looked at the brokenness of that people and said, I can do something with this. I can bring something beautiful out of this. And at the end of that train wreck of a family tree comes the most beautiful thing that creation has ever seen. Because God is the God who can bring something beautiful out of something so broken. And that is what Matthew is telling us as we enter into his gospel. He's saying, hey, something greater than your family history is here. God has brought the most beautiful thing this world has ever seen out of the most broken lineage that you could have come up with because God brings beautiful things out of broken things. I was made aware a few years ago of a Japanese art form called kintsugi, and uh, some of you may be familiar with this, Uh, but the uh, Japanese art form of kintsugi is uh, where artists take broken pieces of pottery, bowls, cups, plates, vases, or vases if you're fancy, and they put them back together. But they don't do it with Gorilla Glue. They create a special uh, lacquer, and then they mix into that lacquer the powder of a precious metal. So they'll put powdered gold or powdered silver or powdered platinum into that lacquer. And they take the broken pieces of pottery and they put it back together using this supremely precious glue that looks like a precious metal because it's got it in it. We have a picture. I I know we have a picture of it. That is a piece of kintsugi art. And the idea behind kintsugi art is that it it takes uh, the brokenness, it takes the flaws and the imperfections, and instead of trying to hide them, it brings them to the front and in doing so makes them the most beautiful part of the piece. And what it also does is it takes something that might have been mass-produced and now makes it one of a kind. It literally highlights the broken pieces and in doing so, makes it more beautiful than it was before. The sooner you get this, the sooner I can stop preaching. (laughs) Can we not see that God is the great Kintsugi artist? Here in Matthew chapter 1, we get this just ridiculous list of murderers and cheaters and liars and backstabbers 
And the God of creation looked at that list that any one of us, had we looked at it, we would have been like, that just needs to be tossed in the trash and we'll start off with a new one. And he said, I can put the pieces of this back together and I can bring out of it something more beautiful than could ever have been imagined. And if he can do it with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, do you not think he can do it for you? He is the God who brings beautiful things out of brokenness. And for some of us sitting here this morning, it's like there's a pretty one-to-one correlation where it's like when you look at your family tree, when you look at your 23andMe results, you know, if anyone have ever, ever done that, you're like, I, I, I don't have a chance based on what I have come from. You don't, like, some of us just look at your family of origin, and it's like, I don't have a, I don't have a chance based on what I have come from. And listen to me, like, again, I need to be really careful how I parse this out. I'm not a therapist. Uh, we bring incredible baggage from our families of origin. But someone needs to hear this morning, you are more than your family of origin. You, you the, whatever level of brokenness you have come from, you are not defined by that. Because when you are adopted into Christ's family, you get a new family tree. Now it's this one, so it's a little bit, you know, you're a little bit. But God can bring something beautiful out of something that is so broken. And for some of us this morning, maybe it's not like a direct one-to-one our family, but it's like when you look at your job right now, all you see is brokenness. It's like this thing is so jacked. I don't like who I am when I'm here. I don't know how to unwind this. How could anything beautiful come out of this? Some of us this morning, you're looking at your marriage and you're like, this is so broken. How could, how could anything beautiful come out of this? Some of us this morning are looking at our family or our kids and we're just saying, this is, this is, this is so broken. How could anything beautiful come out of this? Some of us are looking at our bank accounts and we're like, this is so broken. How could anything good, how could anything beautiful come out of this? Some of us are sitting here this morning with a heart that is so broken and we're like, how how could anything beautiful come out of this? Some of us are looking at our lives and we're like, this feels so broken. How could anything beautiful come out of this? And you need to be reminded this morning that we serve a God who specializes in bringing beautiful things out of broken things. He does what he has promised he will do and you can take it to the bank. I don't know where you are at today. And listen, I just want to like, some of you are coming from real deep trauma and God can be more than that. And some of us, and this is kind of my story, I don't have some great, horrible trauma, but there's just this low-grade sense of what we talked about last week. Like, there's got to be something greater out there for me than this. There's just this low-grade sense of like, can this be redeemed? Like, can something good come out of this? Can something beautiful? Some of you are, are like, my body is so broken right now. Can anything beautiful come out of this? And I just, I came along here this morning to tell you, God brings beautiful things out of broken things. And how do I say that with so much confidence? It's because of this. Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, when he was in that upper room with his disciples, when he was celebrating the Passover meal with them, the last night that he was going to be with them, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And then he looked his disciples in the face and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And if I'm one of those disciples that night, I think I'm sitting there with Jesus and I'm like, 
you know, you've said a lot of weird things over the last three years, and so I'm kind of used to it. But like I'm looking at your body right now, and it doesn't look too broken to me. But we have the benefit of hindsight. We have John's revelation, which says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the earth. And all Jesus was saying that night is that what is going to happen tomorrow is so certain, it's as good as done. My body is broken because it will be broken, and there's no question that that is going to happen. And I just can't help but wonder for the disciples that stuck around the next day, and it wasn't all of them, as they watched Jesus uh, mangled, disfigured, unrecognizable, broken body hanging limp on the cross, I can't help but wonder if they said to themselves, can anything good come out of this? Can anything beautiful come out of this? Because they just didn't know what was coming next. And three days later, in the power of God's spirit, Jesus was raised from the dead and he walked out of that tomb with a restored body that still bore the marks of his brokenness. And if you are here this morning and you are looking at your life and you are like, can anything beautiful come out of this? Can anything good come out of this? Take heart because just like the disciples, we don't know what's coming next. He is the God who specializes in bringing beauty out of brokenness. And may we praise him for it. Let's pray. God, I pray that in some supernatural way, you would actually allow that truth to um, not just be something that we kind of bounce around in our head, but actually take it the 18 inches it needs to go down to get into our heart and soul. Uh, God, wherever we're at in life, whether it's good right now, whether it's hard right now, we are all in some way, shape, or form in some seasons of life going to feel like there is too much brokenness here that can be redeemed. May we believe and live out that you are the God who can redeem the most brokenness. And God, may we now, as we come to the communion table, come in gratitude and praise and in faith that you can do for us what we can't do for ourselves and that though we don't know what you're going to do, we know what you are capable of doing. And may we lean into that this morning. Help us to do it in the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.